to the Wellbeing Rebellion, the podcast that's changing workplace cultures for good. We're your hosts, Ngazi Wella and Obehi Alafoje. Let's get this rebellion started. On the Wellbeing Rebellion today, we're covering a topic that is close to my heart for many reasons. We'll be exploring two topics, in fact neurodiversity and well-being, and the intersection between the two. And to do so, I'm calling on the expertise of Sean Gilroy. Sean is a senior user experience principal responsible for the staff-facing accessibility and inclusive design at BBC. Sean initially co-created BBC CAPE, which stands for Creating a Positive Environment the BBC's award-winning neurodiversity initiative, which advocates neurodiversity and designing innovative solutions to remove barriers to employment for neurodivergent people. As CAPE grew, Sean then created and now leads the inclusive design function as part of the BBC's user design department, which aims to shape and deliver the concept of inclusion and accessibility in design. In his own words, Sean has said, as head of cognitive design, I evangelize, shape and deliver the BBC's ambitions to understand and evolve cognitive design based around the concept of neurodiversity. But what does that mean exactly? Well, let's find out. Hi, Sean. Thanks for joining us on the Wellbeing Rebellion. How are you? I am. I'm very well, thank you. Okay, let's have the honest answer, because we were just talking um, before we started recording, and both of us are a bit bit like, "Uh," (laughs) aren't we? Sean and I know each other, uh, we've known each other for a few months now, we've been um, together on panels, I've had the honour of interviewing Sean once before already, just once or is it twice? I can't remember couple of times I think now a couple of times at least and so we know each other pretty well so we can be honest and this mm-hmm. is a podcast about well-being and I actually think that the discussion we were having before was quite relevant so how are you um I am feeling tired at the moment yeah. uh, after I'm, I'm deep in the middle of a work project that's been quite demanding mm. um, yeah. and it's been going on for about three months so it's getting towards the end and it's that the end is in sight it's it's looking good uh it's been worth the effort but it feels like i've been looking at a screen for three months it's the final push well i hope that um i can provide some respite in the next half an hour or so and we can talk about um a topic that i think is going to be increasingly important to the workplace and the well-being conversation which is that is all about the 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 links between neurodiversity and well-being and the first thing i wanted to to do is start at the very beginning and 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 explain what neurodiversity actually is just in case people were still curious about it so mm-hmm. so can you explain what it is and um what the traditional perspectives are on the neurological differences just for the benefit of our listeners um yeah so so uh, uh, neurodiversity i think people kind of explain it in different ways 
the 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 way you know, kind of the, the the bit the way that it feels kind of right to me is is that it refers to the limitless variability of human cognition the way we think uh differently wired brains and the uniqueness uh, of of each mind each human brain um so it speaks almost literally to our neurological diversity our neurodiversity mm -hmm. um and it's it's centered in the social model of disability so uh where where people find difficulties or struggle it's not it doesn't come down i suppose that traditional sense of neurological difference uh it's not the individual that's at fault or or that's wrong or that's broken um it, it actually references kind of the environment society as creating barriers uh for people which they then often struggle to overcome so in layman's terms what you are saying is that no one brain is the same as the next, but there are groups of of, of brains that operate in uh, in one way, um, which is different to the majority, right? So that's what we would call neurotypical brains. Uh -huh. And neurodiverse brains operate in slightly different ways. And the challenge comes when neurodiverse people are operating in a neurotypical framework so like typical workplace exactly typical working conditions and expectations yeah okay what kinds of um diagnoses or conditions would come under neurodiverse uh so typically people might think about conditions like autism like adhd uh, dyslexia, dyspraxia, uh, some less known, well, uh, less well-known conditions like dyscalculia, uh, synesthesia, uh, and Tourette's synesthesia. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's often, uh, kind of where, where sensors get mixed up. So, you know, often, uh, when people see a color, it will, uh, generate a sense uh, a taste or a smell uh, mm. people uh, kind of hear music and colors um, wow. I'd never thought of that or heard of that one before yeah and, and and things like stammering as well so it's it it's a really kind of broad church neurodiversity um, and you, you know there are lots of different uh, conditions that that can or could fall under that category mm. okay um, so, so we understand different different brain types, different ways of thinking, different ways of processing and walking processing information, walking through the world. But how can us as employers and employees and colleagues, how can us understanding these different neurotypes mm -hmm. contribute to? our well-being, the well-being of individuals and society as a whole. Why does it matter? Why do we need to know this stuff? Um, I think it's, it's a bit, it's, it's like trying to understand people and, and their perspectives and understanding kind of how they feel, how they operate, how they work. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's important for a number of reasons. It, in society that we have at the moment, there's an awful lot of stigma attached to conditions like autism, like dyslexia, dyspraxia. Uh, and when we were talking at the beginning about everybody's brain is different, sometimes mm -hmm. not everybody appreciates that. 
And we've often <clears throat> kind of medicalized, pathologized these conditions as, you know, that person doesn't work correctly. They don't think correctly. They're not able to contribute. Um, and we often kind of typically historically have looked to find fault in people, uh, kind of reasons why they're not very good at this, that, and the other. Um, I think if we give people the opportunity, if we, if we learn and understand about neurodiversity and the fact that not everybody's different, which I think is 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 not that difficult a concept mm -hmm. to grasp. I think we we do a you know we can tell everybody is different. It's just that we don't always ascribe that perspective to the way that we think and the way that we behave. Uh, those behavioural traits that we have. Um, but, you know, all, all the time people are talking about how they find this easy, that difficult. Oh, I can't, you're so good at maths. You're so good at English. You're really good at speaking. Um, and it's an extension of that, really. And I think if we appreciate that and understand that, then an awful lot of people that hold on to these things themselves, that worry that they're not good enough, that, that worry that they can't perform in certain situations, that they're not good enough, they challenge themselves, that inner voice, that inner critic mm. um, starts to operate. And if you're living with that for, you know, since uh, a child and being told, you know, that you're not doing this right and that goes into education, it goes into the workplace and that inner person who's always on at you saying you're not good enough, you're not trying hard enough, you'll never achieve anything um, is inevitably going to have a consequence. And if you get to the workplace and other people then start mirroring that inner critic, people have nowhere to go. And it's inevitably going to impact well-being. So you know that I've got an adult diagnosis of ADHD, mm. but what our listeners may not know is your diagnosis. Are you comfortable sharing? Certainly, certainly. Um, so, yeah, I was uh, initially assessed... Uh, as having autism spectrum condition um well it was explained during the assessment that in, in old money it would have been asperger's but mm -hmm. everything's that asc uh and then uh, l later after probably three four years later um i had an adhd diagnosis mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so that inner critic is it something that you're familiar with that voice it is uh, and it's it's an inner critic that has been around with me for an awful long time. So, uh, you know, for, for different reasons, I've always found you just kind of find your space. I think you find people you're comfortable with, you find your space, um, but you're just constantly aware that you're challenging yourself to be like others or to demonstrate that you're as good as. Uh, not to listen, you know, the, when, when you're challenged for stuff. And eventually you start believing that I'm not trying hard enough. Um, I'm not putting the right amount of effort into this. You know, I should be better by now. Um, but, you know, if that thing you're trying to attain is something that perhaps you're hardwired not to attain, you're never going to get there. Um, you know, you can practice around it. You can have coping strategies. You develop ways of working around it. It's funny because when you were saying um, 
the things that you think of yourself, those are exactly the ones that I think of myself. And I, I didn't, I don't know how um, much I, I, I had attributed the late diagnosis to me developing this very, very harsh inner critic. And, and it's, it's literally not good enough. It's, mm. That's the main thing. Not good enough. You're not quite good enough. Um, are not working hard enough. Those are the two mm-hmm. um, voices that even after years of, of working in this well-being space, I can't shake. And, and now I think, is it because of how I grew up um, and not having had the correct diagnosis and not having had, therefore, the understanding from the people around me that um, it was just something that I had to achieve in a different way. I, I don't know. I don't know. But it, it's interesting that we have these same inner critic. And yeah, it, I think it is. And, and you know, w- w- what is interesting is if, if you talk to people that are, have had a childhood diagnosis, a childhood diagnosis, they're not, th- th- there is still that element of inner critic. There is still that mm-hmm. that consideration. So, you know, even when you have that diagnosis, you've still got that internal battle of trying to be like everybody else. You know, you're, it doesn't give you an immediate pass. For some reason, we don't kind of mm. look after ourselves, give ourselves that space and that self-care. And I don't know, you know, that I think that's perhaps the pressure, the external pressure from society. You know, if you're going through school and exams, you're seeing what everybody does. It's, it's a space where you're always looking at your peers to see who's doing that or they're excelling there they're doing that really well and you have the pressure from tutors from teachers you know you need to attain this you need to get here you know maybe that's not like I say maybe that's not your specialism maybe that's not your skill but it's a bit of a one-size-fits-all approach so maybe you know I, I think it is interesting whether you get a late diagnosis or an early one there that, that inner critic always seems to be there and and people seem to be challenging themselves uh, rather harshly, I think. And is that where the intersection then comes in with well-being? So there is there is definitely a link between um, certain neurotypes and the increased propensity for things like anxiety mm-hmm. and depression and other common mental health disorders. Um, can you talk a bit about that? There is, yes. So, so uh, mental health and neurodiversity are separate things. Uh, sometimes they get conflated together um but but you know it's a separate separate topic um but but yeah the the kind of poor mental health has a strong correlation with neurodivergent conditions people with neurodivergent conditions uh and uh you know sadly I i think that that is all you know down to the fact that we have this stigma around people are often uh late to have a diagnosis even when they do get one it still introduces challenges in terms of you know, understanding where you fit in. So naturally, um, uh, you know, that, that that sense of well-being and poor mental health, anxieties, depression, uh, you know, th- there's a strong association with them uh, still. And and it's it's kind of, I think, increasingly getting talked about and increasingly being recognised, mm-hmm. um, you know, that these two things, while being different, uh, are strongly tied together. And it all comes down to 
kind of you know how how can we destigmatize uh, these conditions which is why the conversations around neurodiversity that have kind of exponentially uh, grown in the past i don't know two three years or so it's been around for a while uh, but it's really good that we're now talking about it openly yeah mm. i think it's 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 really good but, but it's more than i'm um, so much more than talk it's got to be action and that's the exact role that you play within the community so what what can workplaces do to promote the well-being of their neurodiverse employees mm. um, are there any specific accommodations and practices that they do that are particularly effective in your experience i think I mean, empl employers, it, it's one of those spaces, again, it, it's it's changed dramatically, uh, I don't know, in the last handful of years. Um, you know, the, the, there was a point, I think, in there's, there's a survey that the CIPD, the HR professional body, uh, did in around 2018, 2019, mm -hmm. um, where, you know, they, they, they recognized there was, if, if kind of around 10%, um, one in 10 organizations, uh, had a policy specifically looking at neurodiversity. So nine out of 10 organizations hadn't really considered that uh, in any of their HR policies, any of their support policies or adjustment policies. Um, you know, it, we're seeing an awful lot more organizations talking about it now, starting to ask the questions, we need something on neurodiversity uh, and, and starting to look around at, at what other people are doing, which, it, which I think is, is brilliant. Um, but it, it means that there is still an awful lot of understanding and, and, and kind of listening to take place and more that organizations can do. Um, and it was, it was that very conversation of the fact that there's nothing in the workplace uh, that uh, it was actually my colleague, Lena Hawke, um, who I've got to mention because she's yeah. brilliant. Uh, and I worked with Lena for, what, 10 years now. Um, and it was actually kind of Lena came to me uh, before I, I had any diagnosis or assessment and was, was explaining to me um, kind of her perspectives, how she thinks, and, and kind of made made me very consciously aware that there was no material uh, in the organization specifically looking at neurodiversity. Uh, we had disability training, but nothing really for managers to talk about neurodiversity and how to support. So on the back of that, uh, uh, we, you know, we, we had a chat with, uh, funnily enough, the finance director in the organization for our division um, and said, you know, we, we want to have a look at this. So we introduced mm -hmm. this to a few people in HR and DNI, and we started what has become now BBC CAPE, uh, which stands for Creating a Positive Environment, which basically sums up the perspective of, of that entire project, which was all about how can we use, how can we think about this, like using design and inclusive design as a principle to consider kind of what changes, what adjustments we we could put in place within the environment, the workplace environment, uh, that would help colleagues around the organization who were ND. And so for the benefit of laymen like me, what is inclusive design? Um, it's so... Um, we, we work, uh, so myself and Lena are based uh, in the user experience uh, team, user experience and design team. So is that <clears> us <throat> as the people who uh, pay our license fee? Are we the users? It, it's both. We, we, we look after both audiences. Uh, so yes, 
and also thinking about how we design things for staff inside the BBC using design as a principle. Uh, so inclusive design is is effectively uh, looking at how do you design an experience that seeks to understand the people in it and involves the people that you're looking to design this for. So they become part of identifying the problems, the challenges, but also helping to identify the solutions. Okay. Um, so they become, you know, talking to communities, to people who are experiencing those challenges, the barriers mm -hmm. in the workplace become kind of intrinsic to finding the solutions. I think that's the key to anything that is going to be effective is doing it with and not to, right? Exactly. It's It, it seems to be a really obvious <laughs> process, doesn't it? Yes, uh, and yet not done often enough. Okay, no. so what did you come up with for CAPE? We we start so we started thinking of the challenges and obviously uh, you know we between the tours we we didn't want to start looking at we didn't have the capacity to look at recruitment it wasn't about bringing more people in we believed that you know, statistically there were an awful lot of people likely to be in the organisation already who were ND even if they weren't telling people and we started thinking well how do we begin to support those people uh, in terms of providing training to neurotypical people um, because they're the ones that we want to change and influence. They're the people who we have to kind of educate as part of this process. Mm -hmm. So we started thinking that kind of we, uh, Lena created a, a survey at the beginning so that we could try and understand the environment and how people thought and what they what they felt of the workplace. Um, and we, we, we ended up with around 500 Uh, respondents to a survey that we ran both internally and externally. So importantly, we were asking people outside the BBC for their experiences. Um, and stigma was was by far the biggest issue challenge that neurodivergent people raised with us. I think something like 60, 66, 67% of people said that stigma was the biggest barrier for them to disclose their condition, to talk about it openly, to seek the support that they felt they needed in the workplace. Can we talk about that bit? Because hmm. we're in this new, more enlightened world, supposedly. I'm questioning that, but we are. So does the stigma still exist? I mean, what is the shame of saying, I, I, I have a diagnosis of ADHD or autism spectrum disorder? or condition as it is, um, because everybody seems, to, certainly with ADHD, it seems like every other school mum has ADHD that I've I've come across. So is the stigma real? Is it there? It, it, it's certainly a stigma perceived by people. I mean, we, we asked people with these conditions, um, with the different neurodivergent conditions, and, and the perception is that it still exists. There, people are concerned I mean, it's probably, um, you know, also part of that condition it, or, or part, part of that situation is worrying about what the implications are. Mm. And it may be that you disclose and everybody, everybody's cool. There's an awful lot of examples. Again, in the survey, the, the, the people that we found had disclosed, um, you know, were twice as likely to feel kind of well supported in their role than those who hadn't disclosed, which is, again, is fairly common sense. Um, but it was that fear of uh, the kind of 
exclusion, fear of being treated differently. And I think that does exist. I think if you share something with somebody, the, the stereotype, for example, around autism mm -hmm. is so prevalent still because of the lack of conversation, awareness, education on, on what autism is, um, I, I think means that, you know, people fall back on stereotypes and they start assuming that you can't do things or they start assuming that you're some kind of savant and, and like, oh, you must do this then. Or you like get Rain Man. Like Rain Man, because that's, mm. you know, it's in the movies. Everybody remembers it. And, yeah. you know, it, it's a tiny proportion of autistic people have savant uh, abilities. And, yeah. and it, you know, it's, it's um, I think people revert to those, to those stereotypes. And I mean, I was a bit facetious with that question because um, I know that I faced some stigma and there is a, yeah, we're talking about the intersection between neurodiversity and well-being, but there's other intersections, right? As there always mm. are with life. So there's neurodiversity, yep. well-being and race and mm. culture and um I know when I revealed my um, ADHD diagnoses, even even to my family, it was largely dismissed as a as a non thing. It's not doesn't actually exist. Um, when when my son, who is is on the autistic spectrum, was diagnosed as a young boy, he was I think five. Uh, yeah, again, there were people who were telling me, "Don't diagnose him." because that's not a label he wants to have. And then I look at the, the National Autistic Society and they report that 45% of neurodivergent people, 45, have lost or left their job because of challenges due to being misunderstood. And only one in 16 autistic adults are in full-time employment, according to the National Autistic Society. And that shocks me, but doesn't surprise me. So the stigma is real. And as you say, it's four good reason I, I think absolutely and you know the the importance you know clearly people need to to earn money uh, you know they want to work they want to follow their passions neurodivergent people autistic people have ambitions and want to pursue those so you know be, being in employment and and being open and honest around what support you want what you need being autistic uh, if, if anything goes wrong as part of that conversation, all of those things that you're looking for can be uh, impacted or inhibited in some way. And, you know, the relationships that you build at work can change all of a sudden for no apparent reason. Mm. Um, so, I th yeah, the, you know, the, 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 the conversations that we've had with people regularly highlight that, that you know, that, that fear uh, and the change in how people see you, perceive you, believe what you can do suddenly changes just because you've shared something. And it's it's because they don't know anything else. And it's really hard. And I think this is, you know, another intersection with the conversation is the amount of energy somebody, if they do share a condition, that mm -hmm. self-advocacy they have to go through to explain to people, well, this is what it is. This is what I need. This is why I do this. Um, and having to have that conversation day in, day out with people to explain who you are and what you're about is, is you know, it is tiring, debilitating. So you're spending less time doing the work, more time trying to advocate for what you need and explain to people why you need it uh, and then do the job as well and then deal with the challenges of other people assuming things or not assuming things. 
So, you know, you, you can see that that uh, kind of the impact on well-being. People are exhausted, not not just from dealing with an environment, physical uh, kind of and cultural, uh, but also that self-advocacy as well. So, you know, fatigue, tiredness sets in, anxiety is, is more prevalent, depression more prevalent. So the impact on well-being, you kind of, you know, I think is 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 quite quite clear. But it's not all bad news. I mean, there is a, a significant benefit. I I firmly believe, and not just because I am one, but a significant benefit to employing neurodivergent people because they are a source of strength and can be a competitive advantage in the workplace. Right. I mean, that our our innovative and creative problem solving, our ability to be um, good with critical detail oriented routine repetitive work we, we the hyper focus that adhd people can have and autistic people can have with high levels of sustained concentration um it, it makes us perfect employees within the right role when supported in the right way a hundred percent it's it's really easy to accommodate um it's well, i say it's really easy to to accommodate if if you're willing to do that, it's it's all about how you're willing uh, and able to support somebody. Uh, you know, allyship is really important. And you know, what one of the uh, I'm regularly asked, kind of, what's the one thing that we could do as managers to help somebody? Mm-hmm. And, and my answer is always just listen, engage active listening. It's a simple management skill, uh, mm-hmm. active listening, uh, and that means understanding the person working with them looking for opportunities to implement adjustments that's going to help asking them do the inclusive design thing ask them you know what what do you think will help but don't assume they'll always have the answer so make sure that you do your research as well you know you've got part of the job to find the answers here so look at what other people do suggest those things and see if they work and be willing to iterate on that find out Something might work for three months or for a year, but maybe it needs to change after that. So I think, you know, and, and, and you know, the payback from this is we, we it, it's well known, well documented, the importance of diversity in organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the different perspectives we have, the different experiences that we bring to conversations, um, you know, the diversity of thought that we have is is vital. And you know, there, there are examples, you know, we kind of always kind of point out GCHQ as an organization that have a long history of looking for neurodivergent skill sets um, in order to do the work that they do. And they, they support people in that workplace, um, you know, and, and they value those skills. And like you say, you know, the, the, the skills, this creativity, entrepreneurialism, strategic uh, kind of strategic thinking, big picture stuff fine attention to detail and it's all about how do we create the space the culture the cultural space as well as the physical space and the adjustments and ways of working to accommodate neurodiverse teams both neurodivergent and neurotypical working together kind of you know everybody bringing what they've got to the conversation i I think that's just the perfect way to round out this interview (laughs) Um, yeah, you have summarized it so neatly. Um, but I have one final question, my signature question. Um, so, John, as a fellow well-being rebel, which I know you are, what's one change 
that you'd like to see implemented in workplace well-being, perhaps that will specifically benefit neurodiverse people? I think, I think I'm going to have to revert back to <laughs> it's that's a really big question. Uh, it what's is, the but you one can take thing it. I can say, I think, I think it's well, there's there's two things. So initially, well, I always go to. back. I look at so, but <laughs> yeah, the the second one isn't mine. Um, <laughs> so so the first one, as I said, this is about uh, it's kind of listening. It's it's having compassion, uh, mm. which I think is an important part of this process. You know, we we there are none of us are, are clear free of ever having that inner critic of ever having days that aren't as good as other days of, of realizing the pressures and stress of life and and i think if we just reflect on kind of how things make us feel and we don't assume that everybody deals with things in the same way that we might deal with them and that those impacts can grow or, or ebb you know accordingly then I think having that compassion and listening to somebody and be open about who you are, what you've got, kind of how you're dealing with stuff. So have those open conversations and, and just, you know, treat people with a bit of compassion and, and help people. So, so listen to what they're doing, encourage that open conversation. Talking helps. It's really hard though, but talking helps. So mm -hmm. if you can encourage that, the other piece of advice that I've got that kind of uh, is, is maybe better than that. And it's something that, that um, you mentioned on one of the panels that we're at. You spoke about um, grace oh. um, and having grace, uh, you know, with, with each other, with ourselves. Um, and that, that resonates. I've, I've never forgotten it. Um, <laughs> and I think it's just, it's just such a lovely way of, of, of kind of thinking about what we can, how we can support each other. You know, mm. just have a little bit of grace uh, and, 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 you know, the place can be a lot better. So I'm going to give myself grace then today and cheer myself up and just allow myself to be. And I'm going to invite you to do the same thing. And all of you listening, thank you so much, Sean, for today. It was, um, I think it was well-timed. It was a really beautiful conversation. And um, hopefully you guys have found something practical, something actionable you can do today to help all of those in your workforce who think differently, see the world differently, just to feel that same grace. So thank you very much, Sean. Um, don't be a stranger. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion. If you liked what you just heard, please share it with your colleagues, follow us on LinkedIn. The link will be in the show note and generally show us some love. We want to build a whole army of fellow rebels who want to create positive workplaces for everyone. Will you join the rebellion? See you next time.